So we, we are just probably past halfway through this sermon series that we are in called Doxa, Never Again Out of Place. We are exploring the seven core doctrinal beliefs that we believe are the seven core doctrinal beliefs of Christianity, but we're presenting them to you not so much as an apologetic, meaning that these beliefs aren't just supposed to be instructional. We, we don't want you to just give in to what I would call religious intellectualism. We, we don't want you to just embrace this idea of mental assent, but we want you to realize that the beliefs that Scripture gives to us, especially these seven, they, they are not just instructional, but they are also directional, dare I say, positional. That these beliefs, when we embrace them, they should bring us to a place. In fact, this is the phrase that we've been working with each week in this series. The seven core beliefs of Christianity are, are, are doxa, which is a Greek word for belief, instruct us where to be just as much as they teach us what to know. Let me read that last part again. They instruct us where to be just as much as they teach us what to know. Here are the seven. They're going to come on to the screen. Our notes are always online the following week. If you're a note taker, you can always download them the week after the Saturday sermon. God is one. The Bible is true. The cross is enough. Mankind is helpless. Jesus is life. Eternity is real. And the church is central. We've done three of these. I'm going to do a recap in just a moment, and then we're going to tackle a fourth one tonight. Each of these beliefs lead me somewhere. And when I wander, wander away from that place, I will always feel out of place. There's a geography of the heart. So, so some of you in this series, what you're going to find is there's been this elusive feeling of being out of place that you've not quite been able to put your finger on, and I trust that it's through this series you're going to find that one of these beliefs have just been about intellectual assent to you. They, they have been instructional, but these beliefs, maybe you've grown up with them, they've not been directional. They've not been positional for you. That through this series, you're going to find yourself back in the place where you're supposed to be. Where does this idea of being out of place come from? It comes from Genesis chapter 3. In verses 8 and 9, it says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife, that's Adam and Eve, heard the Lord walking about in the garden. Now, this is after Adam and Eve had rebelled. They had eaten the fruit from the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The very first sin, right, has now entered into the world. And it says, so they hid from the Lord among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? That There is a feeling of being out of place that we can have in this life, not because we're in the wrong place physically, geographically, they were still in the garden. We, we can be where we're supposed to be physically, geographically, but there's a geography of the heart that God is trying to teach us about here in that text. God is one, is where we started this series. The oneness of God reveals that the nature of God is to be for others. And, and when we realize that God is for others, there's a revelation that he is for me. And that brings me into a place of trust. 
Now, it might be that you've grown up your whole life with this idea of what's called the Trinity or the oneness of God, the, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It might be that you've embraced that idea your whole life, but maybe you've never stopped to consider how that belief is supposed to bring you into a place of trust. You, you can believe that God exists, but the question is, do you understand that the nature of who he is is to be for others? which means that he wants to be for you. And then when that belief moves from here to here, it gives birth to trust in my heart for him. If you don't have that trust, I guarantee you'll always feel out of place. We talked about the idea and the belief that the Bible is true. God didn't create the Bible for reading. He wrote the Bible to recreate us. It's not just supposed to be a a book of learning. It's supposed to be a book of transformation. And when we come to this place of believing that the Bible is true, not just true for learning, but true for life transformation, it brings us into a place of surrender. I believe that the Bible is true. That's instruction. The position that I find myself in because I embrace that belief is in a place I surrender my life to the truth of God's word. I allow it. I give it permission. God doesn't take control of us. He doesn't take possession of us. There is a yielding that comes. The third one we talked about is the idea that the church is central. The church of Jesus is where the example of Jesus is lived by the people of Jesus, death before resurrection. And this brings me to a place of sacrifice Somebody say, eternity is real. That's going to be our belief that we explore tonight. I am an immortal, eternal being created by God to live and rule and reign with him forever. You've heard me say this phrase many times. I've encouraged you as a parent, if you have children, you should teach your children to speak this phrase over themselves. I am an eternal, immortal being created by God to live and rule and reign with him forever. Now that's a blank because you don't get that till the end of the service. We're going to work our way to the fill in the blank. I want to make a case for you tonight, if all of this is new for you, that there is life after death. That these bodies were not made to last forever. They're not. They're not made to last forever because God didn't intend for us to exist here forever. We begin here so that we can be somewhere else. And we're going to look briefly at this idea, this, this proof of the life after death through the life of Jesus himself. In John 14, 2-3, this is towards the end of Jesus' life. He's with his disciples these last few moments, and so you see him wanting to tell them everything. He knows that time is short, and he wants to make sure that they know everything that they need to know to carry on the mission after he departs. And he says to them, there is more than enough room in my father's home. His father's home, what's he? He's referring to heaven. He's saying, hey, I, I came from heaven to be here with you, and when I leave here, I'm going to go back to heaven. And not only that, but I'm going to go make a new heaven for you. And if this were not so, I would have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. That word always matters. Jesus is saying, hey, we 
are going to be together for eternity. Jesus is going to die. He's going to be raised from the dead. And then he's saying to each of us, you're going to die, and then there's life after death for you too. Death is not the end. It is the beginning. How about Matthew 22, 31 to 32? says, but now as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, right? Jesus is just saying, hey, let me just speak plainly. Let, let me just put it out there so that there'll be no question. Haven't you ever read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living and not the dead. The, the Bible speaks of God being their God even after their earthly death. Why is that? Because there is a heavenly life for them. Eternity is real. Luke 9, 28 to 36, we're not going to read that for the sake of time, but for note takers, that's a great story. It's what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus goes to the top of a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and when they get to the top of that mountain, something incredible happens to Jesus. He sheds his, his physical limitation, and he appears in his glorified state, and there on the top of that mountain, two people appear, Moses and Elijah. They were not angels in costume impersonating. There wasn't a moment in heaven where, where God said, we need two volunteers. We, we, we need somebody who can dress up like Moses and Elijah and go down because we're trying to convince these people of something that's not true. Right? That scene has never played out in heaven. Moses and Elijah were summoned, come on, in this moment. Right? To go and stand back on the earth from whence they came with Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, to reveal to Peter and James and John to pull back the temporal veil that separates this realm from the eternal realm and to prove to the world, hey, there is life after death. Eternity is real. Eternity is real. Jesus talked about it. The disciples saw it. And Scripture records it for us so that we will always know. Again, we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but Romans 6, 1 through 11, Paul goes into great detail talking about this idea of death and resurrection now, when we're reading the Bible, one of the things that we begin to discover the more we read it is that sometimes texts in Scripture are speaking about more than one thing at one time. And, and, and when Paul here is talking about death and resurrection, he's talking about two things. He's talking about a spiritual death and a spiritual resurrection. He's talking about this idea that there's a place where we come to what I would say the, our desperation revelation. We come to the end of ourselves. And, and we realize how desperately we are for this life that Jesus has called us into as his disciples to be his followers. And, and, and in order to embrace that life, which we're going to be talking more about that in, in a little while, in order to embrace that life, I've got to be willing to die to myself. And I like that the Bible doesn't shy away from that language because that's what it feels like. 
If you're like me and you made a vow of devotion to Christ once you were an adult, once you had lived some life, you, you knew you had to shed some things. You had to leave some things behind. That There is a feeling of something dying so that something greater can come alive inside of you. There is a spiritual death and a spiritual resurrection. But Paul is also, make no mistake, as he talks here in Romans 6, he's not just talking about a spiritual death and a spiritual resurrection. He is also at the same time talking about a physical death and a physical resurrection. That these bodies were not designed to live forever. It was always by God's design. It was always, you know we teach this here at City Life Church. We do not agree with a theological position that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was God's perfect plan and that their sin messed that up and then he had to come up with a plan B. We don't, but God never has to have a plan B. He's sovereign. He knows. It was always by his design. It was always his plan that we were not supposed to live in this physical realm forever. We're born here, come on, so that we can live there with him. Eternity is real. There is a physical death and a physical resurrection. It's why when Paul talks about people who are mourning, when they're grieving the loss of a loved one, if, if they are someone that has embraced who Christ is and the forgiveness that he offers, he says we don't mourn like others do. He doesn't say we don't mourn. Right? We're not saying that when death comes, it's not sad. Right? We, we understand that those of us who are still here waiting for our invitation, when it's our turn to go and to begin in eternity, we, we, we're going to grieve the loss of people that have gone on before us. But he says we don't grieve the same way because we understand that this life is not the end. I like to call it being awake in the womb. We're born here. Come on, to live there. Somebody say eternity is real. So here's our statement. I am an immortal, eternal being created by God to live and rule and reign with him forever. I am an immortal, eternal being created by God to live and rule and reign with him forever. Now, I'm going to break this statement up into two parts because there is a part one to the statement, and then there is a part two to the statement. Part one is I am an immortal, eternal being created by God. You had no say in that. Right? You didn't get to choose that. You, you didn't get to pick what, you're, what you are. I am an eternal, there's a next slide that's going to pop up. I am an immortal, eternal being created by God. This speaks to what we are. Imago Dei is a fancy religious term that means the image of God. All of us are created in the image of God. And part of that image is that we are also eternal. Part of the image that he gave to us is that we're going to exist forever. You and I had no... It's not as though that there was some meeting of the minds that you had with your creator. And he said, I'm getting ready to give you life, and I'm going to give you the choice of whether or not you want to exist for eternity or whether or not you just want to live on earth, and then when you die, you will cease to exist. You were given that choice. Maybe you would have preferred that you were given that choice. You're going to have to take that up with him. right? That's part of the sovereignty of God is that he chose something for us. 
He chose something for us. Let's do a little participation moment here. Who, who are some of the most famous painters that have ever lived? Raise your hand and I'll point to you. Famous painters. Vincent van Gogh, yes. Any Rembrandt, who are my art people over? Christina? Justin White, come on. City Life's very own. That is a true statement. Somebody else, anybody else? Famous painters, yes, ma'am. Leonardo da Vinci, yes. Somebody else? Dolly, yes. Going to that, Travis? Bob Ross, yes. Come on. I came as Bob Ross to Halloween a few years ago. All right. Anybody? Bob Ross? People grew up. Yeah, Bob Ross. Some of you, I have no idea who that is. You should. Scotty. Andy Warhol. Somebody else. Famous painters. De Gaulle. Yes. Somebody else? Any others? Did I miss somebody? Picasso. Yeah, I can't leave out Picasso. Lisa. Monet. There's Monet and Monet, right? You know what none of those paintings ever did? When the masterpiece was complete, Mona Lisa did not say, could you, could you do my hair in a different color? The, the canvas did not find a voice and say to the artist, could, could, could we do a different texture that would make my eyes set off just a little bit better? How, how about, are they the impressionists? Are those the ones that are all confusing? Everything is jumbled. I, don't, I might not have that term mixed. What's that? I don't know. The ones that you look at and you're like, I think I could have done that myself? Those. All of those. Yes. Do, do you think that canvas said, could we get some more structure here? The masterpiece does not tell the master what they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to look. It is the nature of the creator and the created. It's the nature of the creator and the create. We are the created. We're the created. He's the creator. Do we, do we create? We do. That's part of also our Imago Dei. We do not get to recreate ourselves. He has given to us certain aspects, certain, certain distinctions. And one of them is that we are an immortal, eternal being created by God. We cannot alter it. We cannot change it. Dare we push against it? It is the reality of our existence the prophet Isaiah gives us a powerful picture. It's in chapter 45, verse 9, of a potter sitting at their potter's wheel with a lump of clay. If you've ever seen that, watched it happen, it's incredible, right? The wheel is spinning, and that lump of clay is on there, and then the potter touches that, begins to touch that clay as it spins, and all of a sudden it begins to take shape. And all of the ways that the creator, the potter, just manipulates so eventually what was just a lump of clay becomes something that is purposeful. This is what God has done for us. He, he is the potter. 
and we are the clay. And he has shaped our lives for purpose and destiny. And in, and in many ways, those purposes and those destinies are as different as we are from one another by way of how we appear and our personality. But then there are some things that we share. Every person who's ever lived and every person who's going to live, guess what? Immortal, eternal beings created by God. The potter, us the clay. It was his choice. But then there was a second part to this statement. To live and rule and reign with him forever. You see, this is our choice. He, he does not leave us choiceless. There are choices and choices that matter. This part speaks to why we are. The first speaks to what we are. This speaks to why we are. And in the same way that there are things that cause us to be different, and then there are some things that cause us to be same, destiny and purpose, there is variety. Praise the Lord. We're excited for that. But there is also, just as the nature of what we all we are share, it's God's desire that our ultimate purpose is also something that we all share. But you have to choose. He doesn't force us into it. It's an invitation to live and rule and reign with him forever. Forever. In Luke 16, starting in verse 19, I think the slide goes through 23, but I'm going to keep going to 31. Just, just listen to this story. A lot of people like to call this a parable, but I do not believe that it is, and I'm not the only one, because in every other one of Jesus' parables, he never gives names. Never. I don't think Jesus here is telling us a parable that's made up to teach us a lesson. I think he's telling us something that he saw. When he was in heaven, before coming to earth, I think what he's saying to us is, let me tell you something that I have seen. A reality, because eternity is real. There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. And as Lazarus was lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, finally, the poor man died and was carried by angels to be with Abraham. You see how he works it in here? He works in the name of someone who had once died but is still living. You see how he does it? Finally, the poor man died and was carried by angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. And there in torment he saw Abraham in a far distance with Lazarus at his side. See, Jesus speaks of these people that he knew of, that he observed on earth. He observed their circumstance. He observed their lot in life. He observed their behavior, everything about them. 
And then he talks about their death, and now he talks about them existing in a realm that is separate from this one, a spiritual realm that is forever. And the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything that you wanted. And Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. Besides, there is a great chasm separating us, and no one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over from us there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. And the rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. Listen to what? But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even to someone who rises from the dead, which is there's Jesus, prophetically speaking, of himself, who would one day die, give his life for the sins of the world, and be raised to life, conquering both sin and death. Not a parable, I urge you, not a parable. Jesus telling us a story of something that he had witnessed. Somebody say, welcome home. This is going to be a new segment. I'm introducing it tonight. And in some way, this segment that I'm about ready to share, this conversation that I'm going to share, is going to be part of every one of our weekly services in, for the foreseeable future. Because we believe in this message that we just shared. We believe that it is sobering. We believe that eternity is real. It's real. And you and I, from the moment God gave us life, there was a deep, deep desire that he created inside of us that we all share. It is our deepest desire. Although we have many desires and we have many needs, some of them good, some of them not so good, but there is one that is sacred and true and holy and righteous. It is a deep desire. We're created with it to know God and to be known by him. To know God and to be known by him. But we are born, this is our dilemma. We're born into this world separated from God. And no matter how good we might think that we are, no matter how good of a person we would characterize ourselves to be, as we look back into the story of our lives, if we're honest, all of us have regrets. All of us have regrets. There are thoughts and feelings and actions. Even now, when we think of them, we have this feeling inside of us of that was wrong. And it creates a feeling of regret. The Bible calls that sin. And sin keeps us separated from God. And one day, you and I are going to breathe our last, just like the people in the story that Jesus told. One day, this life is going to come to an end for us. And in that moment, we are going to stand before God in a moment of judgment. And we're going to have to give an account for our lives. 
And you know what breaks my heart? Is the thought that there will be people who the very first time that they ever have a sense of knowing God and being known by him will be on that day of judgment. And we're saying as a church, we want to change that. We want to change that. Because in God's justice system, the smallest of sin is worthy of eternal death. The smallest of sin, the least regret. Now you might say, I'm glad you told me this, Fred, because I'm going to be a better person tomorrow. In fact, starting at the end of this church service, I'm going to be a better person than I was when I came in. Now, you might make it for a little while, but can I just encourage you, like running in your dreams, I can't do it, right? Welcome to the human experience. You will never outrun your own humanity. You can't. People have tried. Everyone fails. You cannot outrun your, eventually, no matter how good you try to be, humanity always leads back to selfishness. It always does. But we have good news for you. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of our favorite verses here at City Life Church is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You see, see, the good news is that Jesus says to you and to me, I can change that human nature thing that you're struggling with. I can fix that. That was part of the plan for the very beginning. I, I wanted you to know what it was like to be that so that you can celebrate this gift that I want to give to you. I, I can begin to change you, he says to you and to me, from the inside out. And you know what else he says? And 2,000 years ago, when I was here on this earth, when I died on that cross, I paid the price already for every regret that you have. I paid, I paid the price. Not, not, not only am I willing to forgive you for everything that you've done, but as I'm changing you, as you're becoming a new creation, as you're becoming this new person, guess what? You're still going to make mistakes. And I'm willing to forgive all of that too in advance, so that when you die, because we're all going to die, and we stand before God on that day of judgment, Jesus says, we will always stand guilty, but we do not have to stand condemned. We're all going to stand in that moment with our regrets, but Jesus says you can stand in that moment forgiven, and instead of having the fear of eternal death, you can have the hope of eternal life. You can have the hope of eternal life. So every week in this service for the foreseeable future, we're going to tell that story. Why? Because we want people to hear what you just heard. And in hearing, the Bible says that they might believe. And in believing, they might do something that's called a confession of faith, which we call here at City Life Church a vow of devotion to Jesus, that is simply you acknowledging that you believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, and it's an invitation that you give to him, that you want him to become, come and begin to do the work inside of you of changing your heart, that you, you say to him, I accept the forgiveness that you offer. You say to him, and I believe 
that from this day forward, as I live my life for you, I will have the hope of heaven. Stand with me. I'm going to invite you just to close your eyes to create a moment of privacy. If you're watching online, we're going to invite the worship team to come back up. But if, you, if, 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 if you're watching online, I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes too. It just, it's a way that we can physically posture ourselves in a moment of focus. And I'm going to pray this prayer as if I'm praying it for the first time. But I'm going to pray it to model it for you, that you're going to take it, make it your own. Take these words and borrow them. Find your own voice. Something like this. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died for my sins, that you rose from the dead, and in doing so, you conquered sin and death. And so I, in this moment, Make a vow of devotion to you, to live my life for you for the rest of my days. Come now and begin to do the work inside of me of change and transformation. I want to be the new creation that you have created me to be. I accept the forgiveness that you offer. I believe now for the rest of my days. I have no fear of eternal death. I only have the hope. Come on, the hope of eternal life. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said together, amen. There's another slide that's going to pop up on the screen. We're going to look at that statement one more time. I am an immortal, eternal being created by God to live and rule and reign with him forever, forever. And when you step into a moment of belief in that statement, it directs you to only one place, and it's a place that we call hope. There is a hope that you can have for the rest of your life that is born out of the belief of knowing with certainty what's waiting for you on the other side. And that hope isn't just about life after death. That hope is about life in the here and now. When we face struggles, when we find ourselves in circumstances and situations that we would prefer not to be in, sometimes by our own choosing, sometimes by the actions of others, do you know there is a flicker of hope that can always be inside of us that comes from knowing that I am an eternal, immortal being created by God to live and rule and reign with Him 